Okay, so this is part two of our current event and weekly Bible study for 11-4-2007, and we're going to continue with the last part. We're going to be talking right now um, uh, in regard to a, a man named Jerry Golden, who is also another Jew, and he is going to be reporting on the new Israeli Supreme Court building, how it was conceived and built with Rothschild money. And, but more importantly, it was built with incredibly bold and visible satanic symbols. Okay, so now let's, let's listen to him. This is a news brief uh, entitled, The Roots of Evil in Jerusalem. It's called The Golden Report. This was published in 11.16.203. Quote, in this report, I will use many pictures showing... Now, again, this is a Jew saying this. So you can't say I'm anti-Semitic, okay? This is a Jew guy that's basically saying this. And, and I mean, you know... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean like that in a derogatory way. I'm just saying he's Jewish. And <laughs> so, in this, he, he goes on to say, quote, In this report, I will use many pictures showing the establishment of the Illuminati and establish proof that there has been a diabolical plot by those who refer, by those we refer to as the New World Order, showing the architectural design of the new Israeli Supreme Court building, designed and paid for by the Rothschilds. Um, and how this presence um, reflects the presence of Freemasonry and the Illuminati in the building. I took all but one of the pictures you are about to see, so I can assure you that you are seeing what you are seeing is real and in place. Now, again, um, when I put all this teaching together, you'll be able to click on these links, and um, you'll be able to look at these these pictures. Obviously, I can't convey that over the internet. Um, but you'll be able to go up and do this yourself and see this firsthand. Now, I, again, I put out a rather large email on this, oh, I don't know, how long ago, um, in regard to this. So if we go further, it says, um, he's saying here, he took all but one of the pictures that you're actually going to see, and he was actually there, this is all real, it actually is the real deal here. The same families who own and control the Federal Reserve and other major financial institutions have their eyes set on the Temple Mount. And the holy city of Jerusalem. Now again, why would they be set on the Temple Mount? Well, because the Temple's got to be rebuilt. And the sooner the better for them, if you think about it. Because the sooner they build it, the sooner the abomination of desolation can, can, can be committed. And, you know. So they're going to build this Temple for their Masonic Christ, the Antichrist. And he will use this posing as the Messiah. Because see, you got guys like now, like Hagee. And guaranteed, Hagee's just the start. You know how many other preachers are going to fall in line with Hagee? Because, see, they're following a man. They're following some doctrine or some teaching. And the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. And let me tell you something right now. If you're following John Hagee, you're putting yourself under a curse. Because the Bible says, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. You're not trusting in the Bible. You're trusting in a man if you follow Hagee. And he will lead you to hell. Okay? And if you are a real born-again Christian, he's going to lead you into severe chastisement at bare minimum from the Lord. Most likely in this lifetime. So, please don't trust in a man. Trust in the Word of God. Trust in, I mean, these are, these are facts we're talking about here today. And John Hagee has flatly come out and said that he denies that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And he never came to this world to be the Messiah to the Jews. And, and, I mean, it's flat out. It's out of his own mouth. So, if we go further, 
Um, just as the scriptures say, the man who will be revealed as Antichrist will sit in that place in the Temple Mount before the appearance before the appearance of the Jewish Messiah, and many will receive him as their Messiah. So, if we go further, um, in news report 1643, and again, there's links to all these that you can click into, written two years ago, we revealed from ancient Masonic writings that the fervent, even white-hot Masonic desire to rebuild Solomon's Temple on the Temple Mount is a driving force behind Middle East events. Now remember, it's said to rebuild Solomon's Temple. The Freemasons are obsessed with Solomon. Okay, they're obsessed with him. Okay, and this is one of the main reasons the Freemasons want to rebuild the Temple, because they have this obsession with the Temple and Solomon's Temple, and they know that this is the place that their Messiah is going to set himself up, and he's going to proclaim himself to be God. And the Freemasons, particularly at the highest levels, I'm not saying low-level Freemasons know any of this, but those of the 30th, 31st, 32nd, 30, you know, 33rd degrees, many of them do know this. This is their fervent desire that this happen. Okay? So he's going to come and he's going to pose as the Messiah. Now, um, when Jerry Golden now, if he uh, focusing on the Supreme Court building in Israel... This is a quote from him. He says, As the entire report will be built around the construction of this building, ordered by the Rothschilds, I will show you a picture of the building, the Supreme Court building, that sits on a plot of land opposite the Kesnet, and next to the Foreign Ministry and the Central Bank of Israel. It is important to keep in mind that it sits in line with the Kesnet, for we will be talking about ley lines that cross under this pyramid running to the Kesnet, uh, with other ley lines that cross in perfect order to the center of Jerusalem, and on the top of Rockefeller Museum. Everything about this building has been thought out to its finest, finest detail, and it is diabolical. The, devil plan, the devil's plans have been put into place before we ever had this idea of the plan. He knows his final battle will be here in Jerusalem. End of quote. Cutting Edge spoke of the importance of ley lines, and they have this newsletter you can click on, as we discuss the reality that the Illuminati builds their important buildings on occult ley lines. Now, this is something that most people have no clue about. I've known about this for quite a while, researching the occult, and ley lines, which they believe are these lines that, that run on the earth, they believe that if you build a structure on there, or you perform some type of occultic working, that you can draw power from these these ley lines, okay? Now, from a demonic standpoint, I'm sure they have a point, because the people that are involved in the occult just don't do things to look fancy. Okay, they do things because there's actually benefit to them. And they know, on a spiritual level, things that most Christians have no clue about. Now, I'm not saying we should meddle with witchcraft, but I'm saying the Bible says... The Bible talks about, um, let Satan get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay, so we don't want to be ignorant of his devices at the same time. And it just so happens that all these buildings are built um, in line with one another, and they are on these occult ley lines, okay, because they believe that when they build these structures on these ley lines, they can draw greater power from Satan from these PowerPoints, okay. <coughs> now again, this is how they practice their religion. Christians typically will go to church on Sundays and things like this, and they'll do this and they'll do that. That's how they practice their religion. But occultists practice their religion in a different way. And just because we haven't heard about it, yeah, and they're, they're, usually they're a lot more zealous too, just because we haven't heard about it doesn't mean that there's no validity to it. Okay? So, um, since we 
since we correctly identify ley lines in this newsletter, we encourage you to read it and under the section, in the section under South Africa, Golden speaks of ley lines being important in the construction of key Israeli buildings without really explaining what they are. Now again, Washington D.C. was was um, was actually built on the same concept and ley lines. And when you, if you watch those those two videos, the New Atlantis and um, Riddles and Stone that David Bay puts out, he'll give you a lot more background on the whole ley lines thing if you want to know more about that. So going back to this Israeli court building, now I've got these pictures here. I'm looking right at the engineers who were chosen to make this Israeli Supreme Court building, um, were chosen for this job by the Rothschilds, were the grandson and the granddaughter of Ben Zayn Gwain from Turkey, who worked with Baron Rothschild. So in other words, they got to pick the architects that made these buildings. The Rothschilds did all this. When it, I mean, hey, if they're paying for everything, I think they deserve that much, don't you think? I mean, they're footing the bill for everything. You know, hey, we can pick out our architects and do whatever. When the Rothschilds have their filthy lucre involved, you may expect that they're using that money to advance their favorite cause, the Antichrist, arising to take control of the world in perfect fulfillment of the Masonic plan. The Israeli Supreme Court building is no exception. You will be shocked to see how this Masonic design of the building is, both inside and out. The first thing you will notice is that there is a pyramid with the all-seeing eye of Lucifer, just like you'll see on the back of the $1 bill. So, I'm looking at this pyramid, and it's right on top of the building. They've got a pyramid, it's like a glass pyramid on top of the building. In this, It looks like it's sitting in this big bowl. And you can see it from the sky. Okay, so, if we... I just showed everybody at our Bible study here this, these pictures, so that they can see them for themselves. Um... If we look to the uh, look to the extreme left on top of the building, you will see. Now, again, I'm looking at the pictures, and if you get this study, you'll be able to actually do the same thing. If you look, you will see the pyramid inside out, a hollowed out circle. If you look closely, you will see a faint black dot. This dot is the all-seeing eye. Rather than hovering the eye over the top of the unfinished pyramid, as the one dollar as our one dollar bill depicts, this all-seeing eye is toward the top of the pyramid in the middle. The meaning of this is in the same context. However, our $1 bill has an unfinished top with the eye of Horus or Lucifer hovering over it. This pyramid on the Israeli Supreme Court building is finished with the eye of Lucifer contained within. The difference in symbolism is huge. The pyramid on our $1 bill is unfinished because the New World Order, the Kingdom of the Antichrist, was an unfinished work at the time of, of them you know, printing this. America is the new Atlantis who has been gradually moving the nations of the world into making the necessary changes to set the global stage for the Antichrist to arise. Now again, I'm not going to pin every single thing on America either. Okay? It's a global conspiracy. Okay? So, again, don't accuse me of that either because it's, it's, it's global. Um... Let's see here. The eye of Lucifer hovering over the unfinished pyramid represents the benevolent guiding eye of Lucifer. Wasn't that a contradiction of terms? Um, The benevolent guiding eye of Lucifer as his human agents continue their important work to stage the Antichrist. However, this pyramid atop the Israeli Supreme Court building is fully finished, meaning that the great work producing the Antichrist is now finished. See, they believe it's pretty much a done deal. This is why so many people that are involved in this occult uh, hierarchy and leadership are so flagrant about what they're doing now. They would have never done the same things they're doing now, even 20 years ago or 10 years ago. But see, as they get 
closer to the end, they believe nobody can stop them. And so they're getting more and more flagrant about what they're doing. So, uh, let's see here. The fact that the all-seeing eye is now within the finished pyramid means that Lucifer is free to live within. Since Bible prophecy tells us that the Antichrist will deceive the Jews into thinking he is their long-awaited Messiah, we know the Antichrist will be the most... Um, most interested in Jerusalem and in the, in, the, in the Temple Mount. The very important, this very important building within Jerusalem now contains the message that the work is essentially finished. Once the work is finished, the Antichrist is now free to come on the world scene. Lucifer will come down to live with his finished work. Thus, the dot representing the all-seeing eye has come down within the pyramid. The pyramid itself is comprised of three sides representing the pagan trinity, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. Uh, we're looking at some other pictures here. Um, in this one, the larger circle you see at the bottom of this picture is an inverted cross designed to walk on. It is the only religious emblem designed to be trampled underfoot within the whole complex of the, of the Israeli Supreme Court building. At the top of the picture is a Muslim grave site, and just out of view to the right is an Egyptian obelisk. So they've got a Muslim grave site, they've got... Egyptian obelisks um, over the compound here. Um, they've got an inverted cross uh, that you can walk on in this thing. Sounds pretty blasphemous to me. We have shown close-ups of these three most important symbols. The inverted cross represents a most evil symbol of Satan. In pure disgust, Satan has always desecrated the cross. The inverted cross is one of the most consistent types of desecration as it represents Satan reversing or inverting the wonderful blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The peace nick, or what I refer to as the peace symbol, is an inverted cross contained within the circle comes straight from the Emperor Nero who conceived this symbol to represent the crushing of Christianity. And then he also went further by breaking the arms of the cross, bringing them downward. Now, in, in black magic occultic ceremonies, what they'll actually do is they will take a wax black cross and they'll do this perverted perversion of the Catholic communion mass where they'll take the black cross that's wax and they'll actually take it, flip it upside down and break it. And when they break it down, if you think about what a peace symbol looks like, like they say, you know, hey, peace man, well, when you break that symbol down, if you think about it, it's an inverted cross with two symbols breaking down. That's a peace sign. It's also called the witch's foot in the occult. So the peace sign is a very, very wicked, evil symbol. Okay? So anyway, that was just a little side note there. Um, but Nero actually broke the arms of the cross, bringing them downward, and then he circled the cross, symbolizing that he had conquered it. Most of the time, yeah, Nero's not saying so, so much right now where he's at that he conquered anything, as he's burning in hell for all eternity. Most of the time, if you see a cross, uh, if you see something with a circle around it, it represents Satan conquering force. Now, this is a great uh, example. The symbol of the United Nations, which you have the world, which is a circle, and then you have the wreath around the world. What does that symbolize? The wreath was given in the first Olympics as anyone who had actually won or conquered an event. Okay? And in, in, in early Olympic times, what they would do is they would give somebody a wreath if they got first place. When you see the wreath around the world, and that's the symbol of the United Nations, what that's symbolic of is the United Nations' goal is to conquer the world. Okay? That, and again, that's just kind of a little side note there. So, if we go further... The obelisks that you see in these pictures sit just outside 
um, the Supreme Court building. The obelisk is one of the most more disgusting symbols of Satanism, as it represents the phallus or shaft of Baal. Freemasons dearly love this symbol, as they are true pagans who worship the creature and sex more than the creator, according to Romans 1.25. When an obelisk is shown within a circle, as we see here, because the obelisk is actually sitting within a circle, okay, when we see this, um, as we see here, the combination of the male uh, phallus and the female organ represents um, sexual union. So they're always about all this perversion and stuff that they that they worship. And this is within the you know the grounds of the Supreme Court building. And it's no wonder that this stuff would be here. God takes the matter of obelisks very seriously. A biblical truth, uh, a biblical truth, America should should heed. Uh, for we are a nation covered over with, with obelisks. From the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., which is the largest obelisk on the planet, okay, to thousands of graveyards where obelisks sit atop Masonic grave sites. Okay? So, there is little... Now, there is little proof on the building itself of the present of, uh, presence of the Rothschilds, but on an outside wall, we find a stone directing people to the Rothschild Grove. Now you can see this is the this is a picture of the of the little thing that says um, the the Dorothy de Rothschild Grove, okay? And you're actually looking at a cutaway on the outside of the building. So with a, this arrow uh, then points in the direction of an of this um, of an Egyptian obelisk. All throughout the Bible, we see Satanists worshiping in groves. Okay, Exodus 34, 13 and 14 says, But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Okay, always, and this is what you see in paganism, and in Wicca, and in witchcraft, you always see people, you know, these witches out in like the forest or something, worshipping under groves. Now the highest types of most sacred groves are considered um, oak trees. Okay, those are the most sacred types. But, you see this a lot in the occult, okay? And God's commanding here, in Exodus 34, 13 and 14, but ye shall destroy their altars, these are pagan altars, break down their images, meaning their pagan images, their idols and things of this nature, and cut down their groves. And their groves would be the as actual trees. Now unfortunately, you know, it's not really the tree's fault, but I believe that when you do witchcraft over a particular area or use particular things, what it does is it defiles these objects, whether they be idols, whether it be altars, whether it be trees. And this is why God says you should cut these things down. Okay, it's not enough just to pray over this stuff. Preferably, you burn them. Okay, I mean, that's the preferred method. But it does say that God said to do this. For thou shalt so worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. And then, Deuteronomy 12, Three, and ye shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire, and ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. So, when it says, and ye shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars, what does that also could imply? That could imply obelisks. Because I can't think of a, of a greater pagan uh, pillar than an obelisk. Okay? So, and then, and then in the next thing it says, and burn their groves with fire. And this one, before it says cut down their groves, this one says burn their groves. Okay, so, um, that would have been, they would have had to, I guess, cut everything down and, and burn it. 
And then it says, And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forget the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Okay, that's in Judges 3, verses 6 and 7. So again, we got all these references to the groves. Okay? And then it says in Micah 5.14, And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so I will destroy thy cities. So whenever God mentions groves, he's always mentioning this in regard to judgment. God's judgment. Because evidently this really makes God mad. America has her bohemian grove. If you've heard of that. Do we not? President Bush is reported to be a member in good standing. And, you know, Alex Jones did that, um, that video on secrets, dark secrets inside the Bohemian Grove. Um, that video, if you want to go watch that. So, finishing up this matter of Rothschild funding in this building, Golden says, Giving recognition to the Rothschilds, you will notice the Rothschilds emblem at the top. It is a symbol for the founder of the Rothschild dynasty and his five sons who established central banks throughout Europe. And again, we made reference to that earlier. The Rothschilds made several stipulations with the Israeli government before the, be before the building began to be constructed. Uh, among them were the Rothschilds would pick the plot of land to be built, and this has to do with the ley lines, so it's on the right, cultic, whatever, and, and then that the Rothschilds would use their own architects, okay, because these architects were skilled in the art of the occult, and and that no one would ever know how much the building cost. Now, most of the time, these people are very low-key to a certain extent. You would think, you know, people in the Illuminati, and that they'd want to be top dogs and have their name plastered all over everything. But most of the time, that's really not the case. They want to kind of maintain a little bit more anonymity. And they'll have puppet people in government that they control, uh, really to do their bidding more so. And those are the people that take the heat. Because guys like the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers don't really want to take the heat. So they put other people up in puppet uh, governments so that they can take the heat. Uh, now, it took them four years to build a structure and with their many secrets they've built into it. And we're just going to get into some of these secrets today. Okay, so continuing. If we... Uh, Jerry Golden goes on to say, now he's actually... Um, walking into this building, okay, kind of giving us a step-by-step -step tour. He says, quote, after passing through security, the first thing you will notice on the left wall is a large picture. From the left you will see Teddy Kollek and then Lord Rothschild. On the right standing you will see Shimon Perez, and sitting on the bottom left you'll see Ishak Rabin, the others who brought us the Oslo death process that are, we are now faced with. Um, not only is Israel faced with the Oslo death process, but now they are faced with even more insidious Geneva Accord, which seemingly makes Israel militarily indefensible. Now again, I, again, I'm totally against all that as well, where, where they're just totally disarming Israel, so she can't even defend herself. That's ridiculous. Okay? But um, that's what it seems to be. America is in a big push, and all the other countries, a lot of the other countries as well, to just totally disarm and... Uh, uh, disassemble Israel. So, look carefully at these men. Now, there's a picture of these men. Uh, for they are prime movers and shakers in Israel and planning for the kingdom of Antichrist. So they show these, these pictures of all these guys around the model of this building that's already been built. Jerry Golden then takes us to the journey inside the Supreme Court building. Uh, quote, But this is where our journey begins as we begin to enter into the building. 
for the this entire journey is intended to bring one from darkness into light. Now, this is how you walk into the Israeli Supreme Court building. The first thing, um, and, and what, what it's designed to do is you, you come from darkness into light and you finally become an illuminated one. You will first enter into an area with very dim lighting. But as you look up the stairs, you will see the bright light that comes from um, a very large window that overlooks parts of Jerusalem. Here, it is very important. Here, it is very important to count the steps. There are three sets of ten steps, making a total of thirty. As you ascend these thirty steps, you come from darkness into the light. And from here, you can see the world, or in this case, the city of Jerusalem, like you haven't seen it before. It is also worth mentioning that on the left side, you will see the old Jerusalem stone. Even some believe that these same stones were used in building the second temple. Uh, which would again relate to you know, Solomon's temple. But I have no way to prove that. On the other side, you will see a smooth modern wall. There are six lampstands going up that speaks to a man in his journey to gain knowledge and become illuminated. But once again, I feel it very necessary to tell you it's very important the ones who built this building, that everything be perfect and things have to be in order, even numerically. So, for a mo- okay, so now we go back to his quote. It says, for a moment, let us go back to the top of these 30 steps. As we know, there are 33 degrees in modern Freemasonry, but the last three are the ones of higher learning and preparations to enter into the Illuminati. So as we move from the top of the stairs toward the pyramid, we see a great library with three tiers to those three levels of higher learning. So see, you got 30 steps, and then you got three other tiers to three other parts of higher learning. <clears throat> the three final steps in Freemasonry, and after that, if one chooses to go higher, have been accepted. They um, have been accepted. They enter into the highest levels of the Illuminati if they choose to go those last three degrees. It is important in this building to note that the 33rd level ends at the base of the pyramid. Golden then explains this great library with exactly three levels, making the total number of steps precisely 33. Okay? This is a very large and expensive library, but there is something else about this that one should be mentioned. The first tier is only for lawyers, so you've got to be a lawyer to even go in the first tier. You can't just go, go in this library. second tier is only for sit, sitting judges. The highest and the third tier is only for retired judges, which also speaks of the order of things in the Illuminati, as one must be accepted and moved to a higher level before the knowledge at that level is available to them. And directly above that third tier is the pyramid, with the all-seeing eye of Lucifer, that begins the journey into the Illuminati. And then directly under the pyramid, you see the six squares. Now, on this article that I'm reading from, you see all these pictures as, as you're reading. So, um, I just showed everybody here the, the steps up leading up to this bright light. Uh, directly under the pyramid, you see six squares, six being the number of man, and each square has directly four sides speaking to the world. In the center, directly under the point of the pyramid, a crystal is a crystal, so that when one stands over it, he or she is direct in, in line from the point of the pyramid and the crystal below. As we turn to the left and begin to walk towards the pyramid, we notice a metal strip in the marble floor. The ley lines of, these, uh, of the structure cross directly under the pyramid. They run from this place to different places in the city. 
It is where the judges and others can stand to receive the knowledge and power, standing directly over a piece of crystal with the all-seeing eye of Lucifer, the light bearer, above them. End of quote. Now, get, remember, this is coming from a secular Jew. Okay, so, I mean, you can't really, again, say accuse this information of being biased from that standpoint. Um, so, Jerry is right. The number six is the number of perfected man, and that is... Uh, and that man who has been perfected through Masonic initiation and ritual. The number four is the number of the created world, the number of the four seasons, four directions of the compass. The occult concept that the world is comprised of four elements, earth, air, fire, water. However, I find it disconcerting to realize that five judges who make up the Israeli Supreme Court stand directly under a piece of crystal with the all-seeing eye of Lucifer, the light bearer, above them. Certainly Satan has now a firm grip upon the Israeli government and will have such a grip until God allows the Antichrist to kill two-thirds as he promises in Zechariah 13, 8, and 9. The Israeli, most likely the Israeli Jewish leadership now serving the Illuminati will be the first to be slaughtered. Now, there are also five courtrooms in this building. Each has an entrance in the shape of a Jewish tomb. And they do. I mean, you, you can see this. The opening above the door for... And there's an opening above each of these doors. And you can see this on this picture. There is an opening above each door for the spirit to have freedom to enter or to leave. Okay, so I just showed everybody these pictures of these holes. This is just unbelievable. The wall then, with the courtroom entrances, has a curve to it. While the outer wall is straight, there are two things said about this. Some say it speaks of a straight line of justice and the curve is a line of mercy. Yet others say it speaks of order out of chaos, the motto of the Illuminati. There are three judges who sit in each courtroom. The above seats of the judges there are smaller pyramids that shed light onto the judges as they sit over those who are brought up from the prison cells below. The judges' chambers are above the courtrooms and they come down to bring light to those who are brought up from below. Well, isn't that nice? I find it highly interesting that each of the five courtrooms has an entrance that's shaped like a Jewish tomb, with the opening above for a spirit to enter or leave. Freemasons have always had a morbid interest in the dead. In News Report 1399, we report that the entire area of Washington, D.C., known as the Mall, uh, in which our government offices are located, is shaped as a satanic seraph tree of life. But then... We also report that a Masonic coffin is shaped like a satanic seraph tree of life. Therefore, our entire, our entire government mall is shaped like a Masonic coffin. We see that in this, this Israeli Supreme Court building that there are five courtrooms. Our building, our building shaped in a um, number, our building shaped in a five is the pentagram or the pentagon. That five-sided structure, who is sending out men to fight to establish the kingdom of Antichrist. In News Report 10.040, we broke the story that the street layout connecting the White House and the Capitol was originally laid out by the Masonic architect La Infatit in uh, 1792 so, this, so that the streets formed the evil goat's head of Mendez pentagram encompassing the White House, plus the Masonic compass square and rule from which from the White House to the Capitol. These street layouts continue to this day. And again, this, this, has been, this has been common knowledge for a long time on these street layouts. The goat's head of Mendez pentagram encompasses the White House. Trouble most of us since it's a five-pointed star. Cultists believe the number five is the number for death. The death 
the Illuminati has in mind is the death of the old world order and its complete destruction so that the new world order can be erected. Another death in the plains of the Illuminati is the forced and rapid reduction of population in the world from 6 billion to 2 billion, which is a reduction of 66%. And that's pretty conservative compared on the numbers I've seen. Because the Georgia Guidestones say they want to get it down to 500 million, which would be more like a 92%, 90% reduction. So that's kind of conservative, those numbers. Now, if we go further, it says when you leave the center courtroom, or the main courtroom directly across the opening, you will find the stairs uh, going downstairs. At the base of the stairs, you will find the fertility symbol, always present in any Illuminati structure, but it's always there, but it's hidden. As you look at this fertility symbol, as Jerry called it, you can see the phallic upright shaft going down through the oval opening, which represents the female aspect. Freemasonry is... Um, is thoroughly pagan, so we should expect to see that they worship the sex act and depict such worship in their symbols. And we encourage you to visit and read our article. They have an article entitled uh, Freemasonry Proven to Worship Satan and Venerate Its um, Symbols of Sexual Union. Okay, so Jerry Golden makes a vague description to the number G in Freemasonry. Now, a lot of people talk about this number G, this letter G, I'm sorry, number G. Letter, uh, no, he says number in G in Freemasonry. Okay, so he, he made the mistake there. Um, and he makes this this vague reference to that this letter G has something to do with um, sexual union. Uh, David Bay says, you're right. Listen to this brief excerpt from our article on the subject. Quote, and this is from Masonic Arthur author Arthur, that's a tongue twister, Masonic author Arthur Edward Waite, The Mysteries of Magic, A Digestive Writings of Elias Levi, page 217. In this, we're quoted, quote, Masonry depicts and glorifies the sexual union in its many symbols, just like you would expect any occult group to do. A study of the deeper meaning of the many symbols proves Freemasonry is satanic. The letter G figures prominently in Freemasonry. In the lower degrees, the initiate is told that this letter stands for God or geometry, which the, which the supreme architect of the universe used to design this wonderful cosmos. However, the occultist in the 33rd degree, uh, Arthur Waite, quotes Elias Levi, also a 33rd degree Mason, telling us that the letter G stands for Venus, and that Venus is a symbol, which is a stylized phallus. The great Masonic author of all time, Albert Pike, also agrees. He states on page 631 through 632 of Morals and Dogma that the um, uh, let's see, there uh, let's see, the Monrad is male and the Duad is female. Their their sexual union produces the Triad, which is represented by the letter G. The generative principle, this term generative principle is a code for the sexual union. Thus, the letter G is so prominent in so many Masonic emblems and worn so proudly by the fingers of Masons, and what it really stands for is the generative act or the great sexual union. Okay, so now you know what the letter G stands for. I've also heard it standing for gnosis, meaning hidden knowledge. So, again, a lot of times people in the occult, they have multiple meanings, and Multiple meanings, meaning it'll mean something at one level to like a, a, a third degree mason, but at a higher level it'll be showed another meaning 
of the same thing. And they all apply. They're all equally as valid. It's just that they tend, it tends to get more perverse as you go higher and you find out the true meanings. So, with his closing statement, Golden says, we have just lightly touched on the significance of this building. For there are literally hundreds of details that point to the Illuminati and their plans for mankind. But more important to this report, it establishes a base for a seat of one that will be accepted by most as the Messiah. That's a good point. Before Jesus returns to set up his reign and rule over the earth. But as we all know, God has a plan and it will not be stopped or detoured. The fact that this all-seen eye of Lucifer has come down inside a finished pyramid is both shocking and enlightening. This symbolism means that the great work of producing the Antichrist is now essentially a finished work in the minds of the Illuminati, and that Lucifer is now free to come and live among men in Jerusalem, the great capital city, where the Antichrist will make his seat of power for a short seven bloody years. Okay, now, I said all that to actually come back to the original article. Okay, that was a foundational tenet to um, what we were starting to talk about with Hagee. Okay, so again, an accurate description of Israeli leadership in Israel. Revelation 3.9 I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Now that would make, if, some, if people would take that verse to heart, it would make a lot of people kind of back off the whole thing that we have to support Israel no matter what. Because if they, if they realize that these people are evil at the very, very top of the uh, whole Zionist thing, then what could happen is they would say, well, yeah, why do I have to support somebody that's evil? But see, they don't do that. They just throw the baby out of the bathwater and say, oh, we can't speak a word, or we can't do anything against Israel because we're being anti-Semitic. We're going against the Bible. And that's not true because these are people of the synagogue of Satan. The ones that vilified Jesus the most and that he had the most trouble with were these of the synagogue of Satan. And there's nothing holy about them. Okay, it's just a matter of us, as Christians, identifying them. So, we can also understand why the Skull and Bones president encourages Hagee's ministry so greatly. Um, in a, there's an article he has here, it's called, What a Night to Honor Israel. The CUFI Washington Summit Dinner in D.C. This was from July 20th of 2006. So, in other words, this is an article that goes into the fact that Bush and Hagee are such good buddies. And that, you know, they're working hand in hand, really in lockstep. And Hagee really is, is the one of all people that is encouraging a preemptive strike on Iran. He's saying that's the only... You know, I just got to see book, chapter, and verse on that where Jesus says, Thou shalt go and destroy thy, energy, that, thy enemies preemptively. Motivated out of fear of man, out of fear of God. I, just, I guess I just missed that book, chapter, and verse. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, remember, it is a real problem when a skull and bones president praises a, quote, Christian minister as highly as President Bush has praised John Hagee over the years. Hagee is greatly responsible for the groundswell of Christian support in Israel, which is not a bad thing until you realize that the thrust of his current of the current Israeli leadership is, set, is, is here to set the stage for the Masonic Christ to appear. Now let us review the incredible message to the Jews that Hagee said, where he said, quote, you did not reject the Jewish Messiah. Now we're going to come back to this whole Hagee thing, and we're going to pick this thing apart from a biblical standpoint. Um, there is a uh, news report by um, True Discernment, this is October 22nd of this year, and it's entitled, A Review of, of In the Defense of Israel by John Hagee. In his book, 
in defense of Israel, beginning in a section called, The Jews Did Not Reject Jesus as the Messiah. He's got a whole section on this. Page 132, John Hagee relentlessly twists scripture in his attempt to prove that Jesus Christ did not come to be the Messiah of the Jews. His denial of Jesus Christ as the Messiah or the Christ cannot be overlooked as a mere slip of the pen because he repeated his assertion seven ways to Sunday as seen in this sample of seven quotes from the book. And I've already read you his actual quotes off the uh, off this little uh, clip that he had. Here's one quote, page 137. Quote, if God intended for Jesus to be the Messiah of Israel, why didn't he authorize Jesus to use supernatural signs to prove that he was God's Messiah, just as Moses had done? End of quote. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't he authorize Jesus to use supernatural signs to prove he was God's Messiah, just as Moses had done? Doesn't this make you mad? Doug, Doug's over here getting pretty fired up. Um, I, I've already, I guess I've got past it, I don't know. I, I, I was so angry when I first saw this. I saw red, I think. You know, I could have swore. No, of course, we're not supposed to swear about anything, but I, you know, wasn't it, didn't Jesus perform all kind of miracles when he was here on earth? I mean, is that, I mean, are we just to ignore all that? Um, even kind of, remember that guy, Lazarus, he raised from the dead? Oh, show me Moses raising anybody from the dead. He did greater things than Moses, if you really think about it, okay? And it wasn't Moses doing them. That was the Lord Jesus Christ as well. That whole thing about, you know, Jesus being in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights as Jonah was in the whale's belly and resurrecting himself, saving all mankind. I guess that wasn't a sign either. No, we can't count that as well. You know, you can't almost be anything but sarcastic when dealing with this subject. And it's either that or get really, really angry. Um, because it's so unbelievable that he's, he's uttering these things. But it's, it's good in a way, because, it, again, it, it's made my job a lot easier. Uh, because it's so flagrantly obvious what they're doing now. I mean, talk about denying Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at another quote, page 138. Jesus refused to produce a sign, because it was not the Father's will nor his, to be the Messiah. End of quote. <laughs> this guy is out of his mind. He's a madman. He's, he's got to be like demonically possessed or something. He's a tool of the devil. Another quote from page 139. Quote, If Jesus wanted to be, to be Messiah, why did he repeatedly tell his disciples and followers to tell no one about his supernatural accomplishments? End of quote. It wasn't like Jesus was going around doing all these things and all the people were seeing him anyway. Okay, now we're going to go through each one of these pretty much point by point anyway. We're just reading them so you have them uh, in totality. Uh, fourth quote, page 140. The Jews were not rejecting Jesus as Messiah. It was Jesus who was refusing to be the Messiah to the Jews. End of quote. So now we've got this apostate reprobate blaming Jesus Christ. For, for the Jews not accepting them. The Bible says he came to his own and his own received him not. Okay? Anyway, we're going to get into this much further with Bible. Okay, page 141. Quote, they wanted him to be their Messiah, but he flatly refused. End of quote. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, like, it's like incomprehensible what this guy is saying. Page 143. Quote, he refused to be... Now, this is from John Hagee's book. 
You can't fuse any of this being biased. This is flat-out statements. Page 143, he refused to be the Messiah, choosing instead to be the Savior of the world. Oh, okay, well we're going to talk about that a little bit more, whatever that means. Talk about twisting scripture. Page 145, Jesus rejected to the last detail the role of Messiah in word or deed. Wow. Well, we know that John Hagee is an Antichrist because he has denied Jesus Christ. He's an Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but he is a Antichrist. Antichrist is something that is against Christ, who is the Messiah. It's essentially what Christ means. John Hagee's words directly contradict the central message of the entire New Testament. Indeed, John Hagee's words directly contradict the fundamental declaration that defines the Christian faith, which is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Neither time nor space will allow us to completely refute these seven serious attacks on the person, the office, the deity of Jesus Christ, and his truthfulness. On a number of occasions, Jesus boldly stated that he was the prophesied Messiah. We encourage you to read the full treatise on the subject from a featured article above. They've got another article. I guess you can read on this. I'm just going to hit the high points here. Um, so that you could do this to... Uh, and this will totally demonstrate the scriptural heresy of Pastor John Hagee. Remember that this is the pastor who has counseled President Bush that the book of Esther contains a prophecy which foretells that at the end of the age, America will attack Iran. Listen to this quote from John Hagee. The United States must join Israel in a preemptive military strike against Iran to fulfill God's plan for both Israel and the West. This is in the book of Esther? Oh, okay. A Bible... A Biblically prophesied end-time confrontation with Iran, which will lead to the rapture, the tribulation, and the second coming of Christ. See, one of the reasons the Christian Zionists went so badly for this to all happen like now, for us to attack them now, is because they all believe they're going to be raptured, and they're going to be taken out, and nobody's going to suffer nothing. And they figure, they, they look around, and they see the world degrading and getting worse and worse and worse. So they're, they're of the opinion that, hey, you know, we better go ahead and nuke Iran and start World War III so, the, so this Masonic Antichrist can come to power because then we'll get raptured out quicker. That is their self-centered, selfish motivation for wanting all this to come so quickly. What a rude awakening they're going to have. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get, you know, into the whole pre-trip, whatever, but I just do not believe, number one, that they're even saved. They're going to have a real rude awakening. And you know what? These same people that want all this are going to line up for the mark of the beast. They're going to. They're going to line up for the mark of the beast. They're going to believe the lie. They've trusted in a man. They have not trusted in the word of God. They're not even probably reading the right Bible. They're, in, they're under some 501c3 hireling who has no low love for the sheep. And they're under a curse because cursed be the man that trusteth in man and that maketh flesh his arm and whose heart departeth from the Lord. So, this was a quote. The quote I just read you was from uh, McCain Court's Apocalypse, Apocalypse Pastor Hagee uh, from February 23rd, 2007. Now, the Bible strongly indicates that ancient Persia or Iran will join a Russian-led invasion of Israel at the end time. This is the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, we're not going to go into that today, but there is strong indication that will happen. Pastor Hagee seems to be 
so solidly in a Republican Bush political camp that he is mobilizing the support of many millions of undiscerning Christians to support the president in Iraq, Iran, and the Israeli policies. In his book, In Defense of Israel, beginning in the section called The Jews Did Not Reject Jesus as the Messiah, John Hagee relentlessly twists scripture in his attempt to prove that Jesus did not come to be the Messiah of the Jews. Man, he's going to burn in hell hot. He is. This man, is. I can't even imagine how many he's going to cause to fall away. John Hagee's words directly contradict the central message of the entire New Testament. Indeed, John Hagee's words directly contradict the fundamental declaration that defines the Christian faith. That Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. This is what Paul declared in his first sermon to thousands of fellow Jews gathered at Pentecost in Acts 2.36. Now, um, therefore, this is what he said in Acts 2.36. Um, Peter declaring this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye hath crucified, both Lord and Christ, or Messiah. Now, right here, if you just have this one verse alone, John Hagee's, all his arguments start falling apart, but there's so many more. So Acts 2.36, Peter preaching to the Jews, okay, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, which is to the Jews, that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified. Who? Israel. He's blaming Israel. Okay? Both Lord and Christ, who is the Messiah. Likewise, this was the first thing Saul, the Jew from Tar Tarsus, proclaimed to his fellow Jews in the synagogues immediately after the scales fell from his eyes in Acts 9, 20-23. And, um... If we go there, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogue. This is Saul of Tarsus, and then um, he became Paul. Um, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed, and said, Is this not he that destroyed them which were called, which called on, on this name in Jerusalem, and came hitherto for that intent, that he might bring them bound under the chief priests, but Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. So, you know, Saul of Tarsus converted to, you know, then they changed his name to Paul. He's basically saying that Jesus is this very Christ. Scripture declares Saul who would soon be known as the Apostle Paul, preached and proved this to the Jewish audience, that Jesus is the Messiah. The Gospel itself is called the Gospel of Christ, or in Jewish terms, the Gospel of the Messiah. This, in fact, is so elementary, it almost seems foolish to belabor it. It's, it's almost like this is unbelievable that we would even have to do a teaching on this that, this, that this reprobate would come out. But I think it's necessary. Because it's, you know, it's... It's a good, I guess, refresher, but, I mean, it's so obvious that any genuinely Christian teacher could err on this point is inconceivable. Because the error contains the primal definition of Christianity itself. Scripture, therefore, places this error under the greatest possible condemnation. 1 John 2.22 Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is an antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Who's a liar? He's a liar and he's an antichrist. He's a devil. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
So he's basically a liar. He's an antichrist. There's no mistake in the apostasy here. The word Christ literally does mean Messiah. How then is it possible that John Hagee, who has been preaching and teaching the Bible for over 40 years, could suddenly turn and deny that Jesus is the Messiah? Is it possible that we are misunderstanding what he really meant? The unfortunate answer is that Hagee left no room for misunderstanding. He repeated his heresies over and over again. Let us begin with this quote from page 137 and 138. If God intended for Jesus to be the Messiah of Israel, why didn't he authorize Jesus to use supernatural signs to prove that he was God's Messiah? Just as Moses had done. The Jews, knowing of Moses' sign to Israel, asked for a supernatural sign that Jesus was indeed their Messiah. Jesus answered, Okay, now if we go to Matthew 12, 38. Matthew 12, 38. Matthew 12, 38. Okay, and we already kind of read this earlier. And then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees, or of the religious Jews here, answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. It's almost like, you know, they want the court jester thing here. You know, we we would have you entertain us, you know. And yet they call him master, which is a lie, because he wasn't their master. I mean, he's he's ultimately master of all, but I'm saying, he's not their lord. They're not, they're not, they're not, you know, it's just a lie, it's just a ploy here. Okay, but again, they're always trying to trick him and do, you know, all these things. But how, how are you going to trick, or how are you going to fool the Son of God that created everything? It's never going to happen. So, Jesus said, but he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Okay, now, so in other words, what the Jews are basically saying here is, we want a sign, we we want to be entertained, we want to, you know, and... Jesus says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after sight. So he's condemning the whole, basically the Jews for wanting, you know, seeking after the sign. And he says there's only going to be one sign that's given you. I mean, this is, I guess, in, in Jesus' way of thinking to them, this is the major sign that's going to be given to you. Moses, whatever, through the Lord Jesus Christ, part of the Red Sea, did these these other things. Okay, Jesus did all kind of miracles. I don't know how many they had to see to be convinced, but evidently they wanted something greater than this. I mean, he raised the dead. Moses never did that. But Jesus said, "This is going to be evidently the main sign that's given you." And the example was as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this happened after Jesus Christ was crucified. He was in the tomb, he rose from the dead. It was three days and three nights. Jesus was also three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, basically taking the keys back from Satan's kingdom. Taking captivity captive, as the Bible talks about. Okay, and that's a whole other study. But, this is the main sign upon which our salvation hinges, which is really his death, burial, and resurrection. Which essentially happened in this three-day period. This is the sign that our... That our and then it says, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment. Now, Nineveh were the men in um, Jonah's day, when Jonah got out of the, the whale's belly. 
the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment because they repented in Nineveh. Whereas the Jews, who have received really even a greater sign, didn't repent. And they're going to rise up in judgment against this wicked generation. And then the Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here, meaning Jesus Christ. Okay, so, when it says, when, when, when Hagee says, if God intended for Jesus to be the Messiah of Israel, why didn't he authorize Jesus to use supernatural signs to prove he was God's Messiah? He did. Number one, what have they got, what, are they, what is it going to take? Yes. Okay, so going back to this quote from, from uh, John Hagee, he says, if God intended for Jesus to be the Messiah of Israel, why didn't he authorize Jesus to use supernatural signs to prove that he was God's Messiah? Well, he did. And we've just proven that scripturally, that he did all kinds of signs. And then he goes on to say, the Jews, knowing of Moses' signs to Israel, asked for a supernatural sign that Jesus was their intended Messiah. Okay, now, this one quote has many errors. The first is that is Hagee's failure to recognize that the sign of Jonah regarding Jesus Christ, was the ultimate miraculous sign upon which all Christianity stands. Namely, again, as I've said, his death, burial, and resurrection. It is the supreme sign that God gave to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Hagee ignored it as if it were nothing. His six-page index doesn't even have an entry for resurrection. He also erred in his assertion that God didn't authorize Jesus to use supernatural signs to prove that he was God, or uh, God's Messiah. This directly contradicts the words preached by the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. Uh, and this is in Acts 2, 22-23. And then again, all the other obvious, obvious documented uh, miracles in Scripture. So Acts 2, 22-23 reads, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. I mean, that pretty much says it all. Let's just say this, let's just kind of go over this again. Acts 2, 22-23, ye men of Israel, so who are we talking to here? Ye men of Israel, the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders. It sounds like Jesus did a lot of miracles and wonders to me, but according to Hagee, he didn't do any miraculous signs. It says, a man, a man approved of you by miracles and wonders and signs. Even, even this is said by the Apostle Peter of Jesus Christ which God did by him, in the midst of you, in the midst of who? The Jews. As ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, who has taken him? The Jews. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, this is a Jew saying this. You can't accuse me of being Mr. Gentile biased. This is the Bible. This isn't my opinion. This is what the Apostle Peter said the Jews did, and it was a Jew accusing the Jews. Who better? He was there. He saw it. I wasn't. But the Bible is very clear about this. Okay, so, if we go further, Hagee's claim also contradicts Christ's answer to the Jews when they demanded to know if he was the Messiah. 
John 10, 24-33 reads, Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, um, how, This is the Jews that came around Jesus. Okay. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. What more can he do? Okay? But ye believe not. This is Jesus Christ telling them. Because ye are not of my sheep. And as I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, they weren't his sheep. It's as plain and as simple as that. They weren't his sheep. And I give unto them, who? His sheep. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. Jesus Christ is saying this about Father God and Him are one. Okay? Then the Jews took up stones again to stone Him. So this was their, this was Jesus' reward. <laughs> they took up stones to try to kill Him. Okay? When He told Him the truth. Well, the Bible says in Galatians 4.16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, that's all Jesus ever did. He told him the truth. And he, and he became enemies to a lot of people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, these types of people in particular. Okay? So what happens when you tell the truth? You're going to make a lot of enemies. Just the way it goes. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? I mean, he's like being sarcastic with them, essentially. He's like, okay, I did all these miracles and signs and wonders and all these things. Which of these are you going to stone me for? You know, he's asking them this question. And then it says, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Christ cited the good works of his miraculous signs as proof that he is the Messiah. John's Gospel was designed around seven of those signs, beginning with the miraculous transformation of water into wine and cumulating in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, after which the Jews predictively plotted to murder him. They're always trying to plot to murder Jesus Christ. But his time hadn't come. Not yet. Okay? Because Jesus Christ laid down his life when he saw fit to lay down his life. And no man could take that from him. Okay, so if we go further... The Apostle Paul drove the final nail into the coffin of Hagee's heresy when he summed up the purpose of his gospel in John 20, 30-31, which reads, And many signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. It says right here, and many, what, signs. But Hagee said he didn't do any signs. That, why didn't he do any signs, he's asking. What, what does he want? You know, I mean, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, because they couldn't put them all in the Bible. There was too many. Too many. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of God, that ye, that believing ye might have life through his name. End of quote. Peter, Paul, and John are but three of the New Testament Jews who declared to their fellow Jews that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, yet Hagee denies that Jesus ever claimed to be the Messiah, and that this false presupposition attempts to exonerate the Jews by asking them, how can the Jews be blamed for rejecting something that was never offered? Are you seeing how asinine a statement that is in light of the scriptures we just read? I mean, what Bible is this guy reading from? 
I don't know. Is it like the Hagee version? I'm, I'm just really starting to wonder. He's got his own version? He should come out with one. I mean, you know, we might as well just take it the whole way. So anyway, basically he says, it, so, um, you know, how can a Jews be blamed for rejecting something that was never offered? He says this on page 136 of his book. He repeatedly denies that the Jews as a people were in any way responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Peter's Pentecostal sermon quoted above provides another refutation of this error. The apostle addressed the whole crowd of, of multiplied thousands, saying, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem. That's basically saying that this is who he's addressing this portion of scripture to. Ye men of Judea, and all that dwell in Jerusalem. And he accused them, this is this is Peter, is accusing them all of saying, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye hath crucified, both the Lord and Christ. Where does he say that? In Acts 2.36. He says it, and he blames it on them. And again, you could say, oh, you're being anti-Semitic. But this is a Jew accusing the Jews. You know, and this is in the Bible. So, you know, I'm not really being biased here. I'm just quoting scripture. That's all we're doing. So, ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, and he accused all of them, saying, in Acts 2.36, God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified. Saying this to the Jews, both Lord and Christ, meaning Messiah. He declared them all guilty of killing Jesus, and contrary to Hagee, told those thousands upon thousands of the first century Jews that Jesus was not only Lord, but also Messiah. This was the declaration of all the Jews who believed Jesus is the Messiah. This pricked the crowd of their heart, and about 3,000 Jews were saved that day. Day of Pentecost, okay? Now, this is an interesting portion of Scripture. I'm going to turn there real quick. Uh, this would be in Acts 2.41. Kind of a neat little portion of Scripture. So, 3,000 were saved that day. Let's read that portion of Scripture. And they, then they that gladly received his word, okay, this is the word regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, his saving power. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people got saved that day. Well, praise the Lord. Okay, now, it's interesting to know that this is the same, the same number got saved this day that were also slain when the law was given. A little interesting sidebar note there. In Exodus 32.28, Exodus 32.28, we read, now this is after they had worshipped the golden calf. Okay, remember Moses was up on the mount, they worshipped the golden calf, and they came down, Moses, you know, threw down the Ten Commandments, and, you know, they had made this golden calf. And what was the result of all of this? And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell among the people that day about 3,000 men. Okay, so the children of Levi were basically set aside um, to kill 3,000 people that were worshipping naked before a golden calf, which was like the heart of paganism. Okay? 3,000 people died. This was the time, basically, this was the the day that the law was given, the Ten Commandments. Okay? Yet, 3,000 were saved on the first day of Pentecost. We flash forward all these hundreds of years here. So it's just kind of an interesting note. Israel rejected the word of the Lord 
in Exodus 32.28, because that was the giving of the law. If you think about it, they were worshipping a golden calf. They had rejected the name of the Lord, or, or, or the word of the Lord, in this case the Ten Commandments. 3,000 people were slain. Okay? And as a result of that, 3,000 people died. But when 3,000 Jews accepted the word of the Lord, after Jesus had come, okay, that they got saved. So this also points to the fact that the age of grace, which is it's which is the the age and the dispensation that we're living in, is a better covenant according to the New Testament, okay, than the age of the law. So anyway, that was just a little side note there. It's, it's nothing I want to go into any further, but just an interesting thing. But yet in the face, going back to this article, but yet in the face of all this biblical evidence, John Hagee continues to deny that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews, saying, quote, the people wanted him to be the Messiah, but he flatly refused. And again, what, what Bible is this guy reading? He said that on page 139. It is most unfortunate fact that Hagee's heirs cannot be discounted as innocent mistakes. In his quote of Matthew 12, in... Um, he willfully admitted scripture that contradicts his thesis. The true reason that Jesus refused to give a sign in that particular passage is revealed in the, in the text that Hagee deliberately hid from his readers. Okay? Now, um, again, that is the portion of scripture where it's an evil and adulter adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. What he did is he omitted the evil and adulterous generation... And he said, he quoted from his book, No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, and, and the belly of the great fish is the one he quoted, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He left out the whole part about an evil and adulterous generation seeking after a sign. Because see, the way that Hagee wrote that, he said if Jesus was the true Messiah, why didn't he give any miraculous signs? As though that was something that had to be done. But Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after sign. But see, Hagee left that out. He did it, and this is a great example of Scripture twisting and leaving things out in Scripture. And that's why it's important, you know, to look at the Bible in totality. The words Hagee quoted are underlined, and, and again, I just read those. He ripped them out of context in which they were bracketed before and after by Christ's rebu rebuke of an evil and adulterous generation. That, and that would be condemned by the wicked men of Nineveh in the Day of Judgment. Matthew 12 is also one of the many texts in which Christ condemned the whole generation of Jews that rejected him, not just the high priest and his circle of religious conspirators, as Hagee falsely asserts. Hagee attempted a similar ruse on page 138, when he said, let's see here, when Jesus went on trial, this is from Hagee's book, when Jesus went on trial, Herod had desired for a long time to see him, and he hoped to see some miracle sign done by him. Luke 23.8 When Jesus refused to produce a sign for the national leadership of Israel in an attempt to prove he was the Messiah because it was not the Father's will nor his to be the Messiah. Jesus repeatedly, Jesus' repeated response to the Jewish people who urged him to be the Messiah was, My kingdom is not of this world. End of quote. This bears repeating. Hagee says that Christ refused to do supernatural parlor tricks at the command of the wicked God-hating Herod because it was not the Father's will for Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. After he had already done all these other miraculous things on the earth. He had raised the dead. He had done all these miracles. He's going to go on you know, with his death, burial, and resurrection. But I guess none of that counts to, to John Hagee. Huh.
This madness is beyond all comprehension. And again, we see how Hagee omitted scripture to create his false impression. Here is the context that Hagee left out. If we go to Luke 23, verse 8, and I'm going to wrap it up here. Luke 23, verse 8. And Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly, er, and when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he had hoped to have some, have seen some miracle done by him. See, that's all they, that, all they cared about were, were signs and wonders. And the Bible says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. How is the Antichrist going to come? He's going to come with all lines, signs, and wonders according to the Bible. See, it's human nature to want to see signs and miracles and wonders and put your faith in those miracles, signs, and wonders. But if it doesn't line up with the Bible, don't believe it. Okay? Then he goes on, Herod being, then he questioned with him, questioned with Jesus in many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus just stood mute. He stood silent in front of Herod. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod and his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. Now, once he wasn't going to perform all these parlor tricks for Herod, Herod's true colors showed. And he started mocking him and doing these things. Okay, so, if we go with the, the high priest vehemently and falsely accused the Lord of glory and Herod treated him with contempt and mocked him. And now we have this Bible teacher, John Hagee, who says that Christ was silent because it was not the Father's will, nor his to be the Messiah. End of quote. What a leap of logic that is. Really a leap of illogic. This sheds some light on the source of Hagee's heirs. It seems he has wholeheartedly adopted the unbiblical definition of the Messiah promoted by the unbelieving Jews who denied Christ on the pretext that he failed to defeat the Romans and set up an earthly, etheric kingdom on some dusty Middle East real estate. See, that's the crux behind it. The Jews wanted Jesus Christ right then to come back, conquer everybody, wipe the Romans out, and set up his kingdom. That's how they believed it should be. Who cares? Is that what the Bible says? No, because Jesus fulfilled all these scriptures perfectly. But they weren't reading their Bible very well, evidently. And then, he says on page 139, if Jesus wanted to be the Messiah, why did he repeatedly tell his disciples and followers to tell no one about his supernatural accomplishments? Think about it. If the man were trying to gain national attention to rally the support of the general public for the overthrow of mighty Rome, he would not go around the country saying, tell no one. End of quote. With an exclamation mark. So there it is. Though he never explicitly stated his definition, Hagee used the word Messiah to designate to designate nothing but a conquering Jew. See, from a biblical standpoint, he used the word Messiah has to be a designation for nothing more than a conquering Jew who would smash Rome and usher in the era of universal peace. Since Jesus did not come to do this, in their eyes, he was not the Messiah. And in Hagee's eyes, he's not the Messiah. Hagee's bought into all this. Hagee's bought into the same lies that the Pharisaical and the, Sadduce- the, Sad- the Pharisees and the Sadducees bought into way back then. He's in, he's in their camp now. Thus the Jews are completely exonerated for rejecting Christ. For indeed the Jews were not rejecting Jesus as Messiah. It was Jesus who was refusing to be the Messiah to the Jews. What a lie from the pit of hell. It is a tragedy that Hagee wrote 
as if he never understood a single word of the New Testament proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How else could he assert that there is a distinction between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Messiah, as he did not as he did this when he asserted he refused to be their Messiah, choosing instead to be the Savior of the world. He appears no less of the Gospel than any ten-year-old child who has recited Luke 2.11 in a Christmas pageant. He is. He's, he's, he, he's acting as though he knows less than a ten-year-old child who has recited Luke 2.11 in the Christmas pageant. Luke 2.11 reads, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's like he's putting himself on a level... Less than a child. So anyway, I'm going to end that for, for this week. Oh, actually, that's the end. Okay, great. I got through everything. I didn't think I would. So anyway, uh, I'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. I do pray, Lord God, that your truth would go forth. Lord God, that thy name would be glorified, that many would be saved as a result of what you're going to do even this day, Lord God. I do pray, Lord God, that you would forgive us for any and all sins that we have committed, Lord God, in any way, shape, and form. That the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. We praise you, Lord God. I pray that you bring us back at the next appointed time. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.